Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is my friend and neighbor, Mark Patrikoff, who has been a veteran investment fellow, as well as a lifelong sports fanatic who has factored that passion into his career. And we're going to explore that today. Mark is uh, the CEO and founder of Patrikoff & Company, and they specialize in really helping major, major athletes, whom we'll talk about in a bit, with their investments. So welcome to The Caring Economy, Mark Patrikoff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, having been an avid listener of, of this podcast series, I feel flattered. And uh, you're someone who always showers a lot of positivity on other, other people, Toby. So I, I feel lucky to be the recipient of that today. Well, it's mutual, my friend. So thank you. Uh, Mark, give our listeners a sense of who Mark Patrikov is and how he got where he got in his career. And in particular, if you could touch upon the, the pivots you've made in your career and why you went left instead of right, how you dealt with a, a major setback um, to the degree you're comfortable, please. Sure, and, and, and for me, at the end of the day, there was really one major pivot that I made early in my career, which determined the entire kind of trajectory that um, you mentioned sports. You know, I'm only in this, I've only been in the sports industry for about two years. So sports was a personal passion, not a professional passion, which we could talk about later in terms of sort of when and if you can actually tie your personal and professional passions together. Uh, not everyone's fortunate enough to do that. And it took me until my 50s to be able to find a, a way to do so. Um, I started my career in Hollywood. I went out to California to go to film school and uh, dragged my now wife, my then girlfriend with me. And we had one car between the two of us and no money and really sort of went out as you hear people doing, going to Los Angeles to build a career in the movie business. And I learned very quickly in my first year of film school at USC that my talents were better used elsewhere. And it, it only happened really because of a colleague and classmate whose name is Doug Lyman, who ended up becoming a very famous film director. And when you compare Doug's Super 8 movies to my Super 8 movies, you learn pretty quickly the difference between talent and aspiration to have talent. And I was in the latter category. So instead of trying to uh, push a rock up a hill, I ended up getting a job at Creative Artists Agency on the business side of the entertainment industry. And I learned very quickly that supporting creative people could be just as fulfilling as being a creative person. So I've really built my entire career around providing the business resources, access to finance, technical skills, all the different things one does to monetize, and I hate that term, but it is useful in this case, uh, content, and launched a career that has now been going on for 25 or so years in the um, adjacent components of the entertainment industry. And I say adjacent, not necessarily outside the sphere of it, but not the creation part of it, but the business side of, of, of creativity. So my first, um, after working at CA for about almost six years, I left to start an internet incubator when that was a hot thing to do and built it from my living room with a great partner from scratch into a 350 person business that saw um, tremendous opportunity in terms of the things we were building. We were building websites, this is the late 90s. So we built a website called All True Videos, but unfortunately someone else was building YouTube at the same time. And we built something called The Screening Room in partnership with Sony Pictures, but instead Reed Hastings had this idea for Netflix. And you know we came close on a couple of things, but built a substantial business nonetheless. When the bubble burst in 2001, so, so burst KPE. 
And I wrote a blog that's in Business Insider, which I think is worth reading if you have any interest in entrepreneurship about the difference between starting a company for the first time and starting a company for the second time. But I was heartbroken when KPE went like this and then unfortunately came crashing down. I was able to sell it, make a little bit of money, but I learned more deconstructing that business than I did putting it together, which was for me kind of big life lesson number one uh, about, about sort of, you know, you do things when you don't know what can't work or, or have no vision of things falling apart. I had multiple opportunities to sell the business long before the bubble burst, but I just didn't see any chance it was going to decrease in value. So I kept going and then unfortunately 2001 happened and mm -hmm. I sold it in December of 2002. And that led me through a series of entrepreneurial sort of misstarts. And ultimately I found the right groove for myself, which was creating a financial services firm to support entertainment companies, both online and off and started it with two partners, again, two great partners. And the firm was called Mesa, stood for Media Entertainment Strategy Advisors. We started that in 2007, bubble burst again in 2008. So with this time, I kind of knew how to navigate and actually was able to take advantage of the fact that um, the market crashed. And we were really tough and resilient and did a lot of work um, with funds that are already raised money and helped them understand Hollywood and how to buy assets in Hollywood on a discount and et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, built a very substantial real business this time. So the second company was uh, much more of a, of a real entity. It, it sort of looked like something else. It was an investment bank and you kind of knew what to do because there were many other investment banks out there you could model yourself after. So uh, Mesa was a significant success in 2015, not looking to sell it, which is the best time to sell a business. I was able to sell it. And Hulahan Loki purchased it in the summer of 2015. Very successful exit. And I, frankly, I was sort of bored and ready to do something new anyway, so the timing was great. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for Hulan for a very short period of time to help integrate the business. And while doing that, I was asked to co-host a television show with Rob Gronkowski, the Gronk, who was the Patriots mm -hmm. uh, tight end and very famous for all of his television commercials and so forth. It was a, the TV show was called MVP and it was a shark tank for pro athletes. And during the time we were filming the show, we shot 36 episodes over two years. Yep. Uh, I got to meet 60 or 70 professional athletes. And I learned during the course of this um, process that these athletes were going um, without advice on their alternative investments, that their wealth advisors were happy to, you know, obviously manage their liquid assets and their agents would manage their contract, but there was no one in their lives that could help them navigate how to make investments in private companies. And frankly, if you have a net worth of 30, 40, 50, $100 million, $200 million, $500 million, you need to put somewhere between sort of five and 20% of your net worth into private investments. That's just a rational allocation to that asset class. Yep. But yet these athletes were over allocating to private deals and without advice. So of course, bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, could you build a platform that would aggregate at the time, I thought maybe 15, 20 athletes and their 15 to 20% of their net worth, let's say, in, and use them as a Trojan horse to gain access into interesting private investments where their involvement might make a difference in terms of being able to impact the outcome of the business. So launched the company in 2018 in partnership with JP Morgan. Fast forward now, we have um, 88 athletes on our platform, some of the most famous names in all sports and have made 10 investments. Uh, we've had two exits. We just sold a company called Cholula Hot Sauce, which you might be familiar with, with a wooden top, mm -hmm. and did very well with that exit. We've got SpaceX, so we've done all kinds of things. Uh, we're launching a real estate fund in January with, in partnership with Related, 
So uh, really trying hard to provide the most unique, interesting opportunities to these athletes. And then as part of that, we have a group of high net worth individuals who've paid us access to join our club that allows them to invest alongside the athletes. So now we manage two pools of capital. So ladies and gentlemen, again, today here on the Caring Economy, we have Mark Patrickoff, who's founder and CEO of Patrickoff and Company. Mark, uh, I know much of this information is in the public domain, so I don't mind asking you, can you give us a sense of some of those um, bold-faced names, celebrity athletes that we would know? I know, for example, CeCe Sabathia is one of your, your clients, but... Uh... Sure. I mean, we, have, we have clients in all sports. We have CeCe, and um, in basketball, we've got everyone from Kyrie Irving to Bradley Beal to Blake Griffin, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, Victor Oladipo, on on. Football, we have, I think, five NFL starting quarterbacks, including Dak Prescott and Ryan Tannehill. We have Todd Gurley. We have um, all three of the best tight ends in football, Kerry, uh, uh, George Kittle, Zach Ertz, and number one, Travis Kelsey, and Byron Jones, and a long list. And Venus Williams in tennis, yep. and Julie Ertz in soccer. So uh, a good list, and growing every day. And frankly, at this point, we've, we've really stopped taking on new clients unless they check a certain box for us. And the bo it's really important to be clear, we're not just looking for the best names or the biggest names, and we're not just looking for the biggest bank accounts, looking for athletes who have the aptitude and the interest and sort of a demonstrated desire to invest the way we invest, yep. which is um, more conservatively, uh, later stage companies where there is cash flow, not, not so much this sort of a spray and pray venture investing that, that a lot of the athletes have done and then therefore gotten burned. Now, now Mark, you're being incredibly modest. I know you so well. Um, you Sports is so integral to who you are. You were a very successful football player in high school. You have been rabid Dolphins fan throughout your life. You have your man cave. I see you in there now. Uh, our listeners can't see it. But, um, but talk a little bit about uh, if it is possible to marry one's passion purpose with the career How, are there any tips you have because you you're doing it real time and i think it's a real inspiration for our our listeners you know, yeah i mean look i think if you're lucky in life there's a lot of ways to be lucky in life i was lucky in life personally professionally if you're lucky in life if you know what you want to do when you're 15 and you and you have a passion to be an artist or a doctor or a musician or there's some there's some avocation that just speaks to you that wasn't me so I had my love of sports in terms of playing sports in high school. And that really was football and skiing. Mm -hmm. um, I had my passion of the Miami Dolphins, which goes back into the 70s when they won their last Super Bowl, sadly. <laughs> um, I never really looked to combine the two. Even when I was, there may have been a couple moments in my 20s when I tried to get a job at WFAN or IMG when I thought I love sports, easy, you know, let's work in sports. But you know, that doesn't mean that's a match to what your skill sets are. Mm -hmm. So I, I really learned sort of as I transitioned from my 20s to my 30s, that I better double down on what I do well. And I figured out, I learned, and it took me until 30 probably to know what I do well. Mm -hmm. And once I knew what I did well, uh, there, were, there were times I may have dabbled in trying to apply that to sports. But for the most part, I had this really unique inside uh, access to Hollywood and this training that I had at CA. And, and I knew that I had good financial services skills in terms of giving advice and seeing the future of the entertainment business and being a good negotiator, understanding client service, all the different components that I've applied to being a good investment banker. 
And I knew how to apply that to Hollywood. I didn't know how to apply that to the sports industry. So I didn't do it. Now I flattered um, other people who did know how to do it. So I could, you know, learn what they knew. And I tried and, you know, we did a couple of deals in the sports adjacent space. We advised FanDuel on, on all their financings. Yeah. And we sold one baseball agency to uh, Bob Sillerman, SFX Baseball. But for the most part, I really kept my love of sports at home and my love of business and entertainment at work. And it was only this sort of television show that sort of fell in my lap mm -hmm. that led to me doing this. And the truth is I'm applying the exact same skill set that I used when I was an investment banker to these athletes. And when we call our firm investment advisory platform, but the pitch to the athletes is you've got your agent, you've got your wealth advisor, you have your lawyer, now you have your investment banker. Mm -hmm. So I really haven't changed anything. I'm just servicing athletes as the client instead of servicing FanDuel or Airbnb or CBS or Sony as I did when I was investment banking. Yeah, but I'm going to push back a little bit there because you actually, as a sports fan, like you also speak sports. I mean, you, you, I think, have credibility, not just because of your financial savoir-faire, your investment track record, your reputational currency, but you, this is like, this is a passion for you and it's, it's great to see it. Um, Mark, tell us a little bit about how, how the athletes are different or are identical to your other clients historically? You know, it's a great question. And, and interestingly enough, I, what I've learned is uh, just like there are smart bots, you know, look, I'll, I'll, let's assume there's a baseline of intellect that is required to succeed in most professions, but, but there is a, there are a group of smart investment bankers and there are a group of less smart investment bankers. Same thing with doctors, lawyers. It's, just, it's no different in sports. I mean, I have found that there are some incredible minds amongst our list of athlete clients. And then there are others who are less so. And I've been blown away by the quality of the character and the intellect and the desire to learn and the willingness to trust. And I've just been really impressed. Now that's not across all 88 of our clients. Obviously there's a variety of types and individuals and so forth, but there's a subset that, that I personally kind of manage on a day-to-day -day basis. We've got a full team and a process, but there is a subset of about a dozen that I speak to on a, on mostly a daily basis yeah. that are no different than talking to the CEO of company A or company B or the executive at company C or company D. So I, I think it's, I think there's a negative bias towards the, uh, you know, the base level, you know, intellect of professional athletes. It's just not fair. Remember they, they've made certain sacrifices to, to spend the amount of time it takes to become a professional athlete, you're, yep. you're going to sacrifice something. Yes. So you and I may have been reading the newspaper or, or, or going to an art gallery or something else where they're, they're, they're in the gym. It doesn't make them less intellectual, Correct. or at least not the potential for being intellectual. Well, you know who is a great example of that for me, I've had the good fortune twice now to have been um, with Stan Smith at the U.S. Open. And I think of him, and I'd love to ask you about the sort of the evolution of this particular niche of investing, because Stan strikes me as one of the earlier pioneers of recognizing the power of brand, his own brand, working with Adidas at the time to, um, to, to merchandise his brand in a sense, but also built his whole sort of consultancy uh, above and beyond that and has such, I think, class and, and um, savoir faire, but um, can you talk a little bit about how the wealth advising business for celebrity athletes has evolved? Who were the early pioneers and how has it evolved? Well, 
first of all, um, I love Stan Smith sneakers. Uh, you know, there are exceptions that, that are not what we're trying to accomplish. So we're not trying to be Magic Johnson or Michael Jordan or uh, Stan Smith or LeBron. There, there's a subset of athletes who, now I think they were surrounded by the right types of people. They had to be early in their careers. And they also saw the opportunity. Uh, one of the most interesting athlete stories is a guy named Junior Bridgman who never started, but played 11 years in the NBA in the seventies, played for the Milwaukee Bucks, so not a major market and was smart enough to start, never made more than I think $350,000 in a season, wasn't a starter even, um, no all-star games, et cetera, but started buying uh, pieces of a Coke bottling plant and then a chocolate company. And then I think he bought Wendy's franchises, something along those lines. And now it's worth $600 million. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to be LeBron to, to be successful. Uh, I think you have to surround yourself with the right people and you have to start early. I mean, the guys who don't realize that their relevance, and I'm not exactly answering your question, but I'm trying to be helpful here. Oh, it is very I think the ones who are most successful are the ones who get it early. So we have just launched out of our firm, a rookie program. So rookies who don't yet have enough money to invest in our deals, because we have a certain net worth requirement, but we know they're going to earn it. We now have a rookie class, we call it. And it's seven superstars um, in terms of their draft status and their, and their name recognition who we are going to, uh, or we are putting into a set of business classes, if you will, uh, but not sort of generic things, very much organized around creating a business career in parallel to your playing career. Because if you, because you want to build your business career while your relevance is on the uptick, not, not where it's in reverse. So if you want to start your career, I talk to a player on the Kansas State Chiefs all the time, who's an offensive lineman. He's made real money, about $80 million. Um, but name recognition for an offensive lineman is different than that of a quarterback or an NBA star. And he is just starting now to realize he's going to retire in a year or two and he's done nothing on the business front. So we're trying to accelerate that for him and introducing him to local real estate developers. We know where he's going to live after he retires. So local real estate developers and local Fortune 500 CEOs in the, in the city in which he's chosen to live. So I think starting early is the most important thing if you can, if you know that. I mean, and Dominic and Sue, who's a good friend of mine, uh, was smart enough when he went to the University of Nebraska to befriend Warren Buffett because he was a big Nebraska football supporter. Um, that's a pretty good mentor to have. A good friend so have. it's not so much the wealth advice. It's not so much the wealth advice. I mean, I've seen everything on the wealth advisor side. We have wealth advisors we think are brilliant and trustworthy, and we work very well with them. We've seen a couple of them who I think are borderline crooks. And for the most part, it's a commoditized service, you know. Um, that wealth management and there's there's a variety of different shapes and sizes some better than others it's really more the people who are your, your, your mentors that I think matter the most and the athletes that realize that and we're trying to create a process around mentoring so our ADA clients could see us that way and we can be their conciliaries some understand that some don't uh, the ones who do and we don't need to be the only one in their lives so part of our job is to tee them up with other mentors I mean that's really you know, uh, what we're trying to do. And that's where that rookie class concept comes in, which is trying to get these seven kids, you know, with the right people early and, and based on their interests. And what is the, so I love that concept. It's so sports analog, analogous. Um, so again, ladies and gentlemen, today we have Mark Patrickoff, who's founder and CEO of Patrickoff and Company. This is a highly specialized private investment platform that's designed to meet the unique businesses and needs and opportunities for professional athletes. Think Venus Williams, Cece Spathia, and so forth. Hey, Mark, tell us a little bit about, um, uh, on other notes, your your interest in politics and uh, the work you've done as a fundraiser, as a, a check writer, 
as someone who cares desperately about the democratic process, both at the local level as well as federal and state? Well, I was um, fortunate enough to inherit political interest from my dad who was involved with Bill Clinton in the early 90s. And I still think the association of Clinton is a positive one. So for anyone who doesn't, forgive me. I but I also saw politics as an extension. It's not, it's not a non-for-profit um, allocation financially or, or, or time-wise, but it is another way of, of, of trying to better one's society. And I got interested, and this will sound preposterous, but it is true. I met Barack Obama long before I think anyone certainly listening today probably heard of his name even, or, you know, probably 99. And I met him through a friend, uh, basically uh, Ari Emanuel who runs Endeavor and I were very friendly. And his brother, Ram, was at an investment bank called Wasserstein Perella, uh, which I had, uh, with whom I'd done a lot of business and I actually invested in my first business. So I knew Ram and then Ram went back to Chicago after investment banking and he knew Barack from Chicago. And anyway, one thing led to another, I met Obama early than, you know, early early on, long before I ran for Senate. And I used to hang out with him on a regular basis. And I really believed, I mean, I, I, you know, we can debate the quality of his presidency, you know, and, and we'll debate that for a long time and how we ended up where we are today, or at least how we were until November 3rd or 8th, whatever the election day was this year. But, you know, I, 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 I saw somebody in somebody who could have done anything smart enough, you know, charismatic enough, visionary enough to be the CEO of Apple or the president of the United States, put it that way. And I got very involved and, and know that I had a lot to do with his early, early days and saw that, you know, yes, I wish campaign finance reform were a reality and I would love to see things be different. But while we have the system we have, you can try to change it in parallel, but you can't, but to ignore it at the same time seems to be a mistake. I realized if you put the yes. right people in office, you can affect change that way. And I wasn't looking for anything for myself. I didn't help him because I wanted to be the ambassador to France or I wanted to go live and work in Washington. I did it because I thought he could do things I can't do. And that yeah. I could do things he can't, he couldn't do. And I would take him to Michael's restaurant and we'd sit at that front table, not as fundraisers. And I would invite people, you know, and we'd have interesting lunches. And then every time someone walked by, I'd say hello to me, I introduced them to him. Because I knew that at Michael's, if you sit in the front table, a lot of people are going to stop by and say, hi, Mark. And I would be able to say, this is Barack Obama. And he'll tell you still to this day that that's how he met a lot of his early supporters in New York. And, you know, and I wasn't doing it for credit. I do it, did it because I thought he was interesting. And I did the same thing for Howard Dean and Gillibrand. And I did help Hillary um, and so forth. I, I burned out on it, I have to say, on the fundraising side. So I get no credit for Biden having won this time. You got a lot more credit than I do. I really I really um, ran a gas on the fundraising. You know, it is it is hard to ask your friends for money repeatedly. And yes. um, I, I, I would like to find another path, whether running myself one day or, you know, mm -hmm. other things you can do. I run, I'm, I've been the chair of a charity for 15 years now, and I put a lot of hope and heart into that. But, you know, we all have to find what interests us and where we can make an impact. And I think my impact on fundraising and politics, you know, may have run its course. I do think that the Democratic National Committee needs addressing. And mm -hmm. I would like to see, I'm, I'm grateful and, and so happy, as are you, obviously, that Biden won. However, I'm very concerned about the, the, the long-term prospects of the Democratic Party. So if I were to do anything again, it would be much more oriented around trying to address why, as a party, the base of our kind of pyramid um, seems so fragile.
and shrinking. I agree. You think so, we're uh, about candidates and elections, not ideas and issues. Yeah, no, we've got, the work starts now with reuniting this nation and, and my own family even, we're, we're divided. Um, so I know among your activities and affiliations, you've got Crestview Partners where you're senior advisor, you're Hornblower Cruise Lines, uh, board of director member, uh, NEP Broadcasting Board of Directors, but you'd mentioned your, your work with New Heights Youth and uh, you're chairman of the board there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think our audience would be really inspired by it. Yeah, I mean, it actually is a good full circle um, discussion because while you know, while and, and I was building my business career and couldn't really do anything in sports, I found a charity that combined sports and academics. And New Heights, which was actually incubated inside a different charity in the early 2000s, was meant to find kids who demonstrated um, a willingness and an ability to participate in a team and stay focused and attend practice, and then turn that passion and, and, and conviction and um, commitment in, into, you know, the, the, apply it to academics. So basically the idea was if you can show up and, and participate in a team, you can do the same thing in academics. So we put them with the best basketball coaches in exchange for as a hook to get into the classroom and do after school academic programs. And it evolved into a really powerful organization that I think is one of the most important in New York. We're moving now into our own permanent facility and in, into the armory in Brooklyn. Um, we're run by, it's run by a fantastic guy named Ted Smith. We serve almost 250 kids, um, half girls, half boys, who not are, are not necessarily gonna end up in the NBA, although we have a kid this year, Cole Anthony, who was drafted by the Magic, and another, another kid on the, on, the, uh, on the, I think, Denver Nuggets, Precious. Achua. But, you know, the goal here is not to get these kids in the NBA. The goal is to get them into college. And our college matriculation rate is 100%. And um, so we get these kids early. We support their, them and their families with uh, a variety of after-school programs, all academic in nature, and then good basketball coaching as well, which kind of keeps them coming back. And it's been a big joy of my life. And it was my access to, to sports. However, I will tell you, there's a, we have an 18 person board or 16 person board. Um, I should know since I'm chair, but we're adding new people. Um, I know my role in the organization. So I'm not out there coaching basketball. I'm working with the executive director on the five-year plan on our financing strategy. So yes, I'm involved with the organization, deeply involved, I, mean, I chair it, but I know where I can add value. And um, yes. I stick to that. Well, that's a sign of that's a sign of wisdom, I think. And you're, you're, you sure. truly are an inspiration to me, Mark. You and Martha and your family. Um, and I see even with Lily and her involvement, we both met on or worked together on the Bloomberg campaign. Um, I see how the the baton is passed from one generation to the next in the Patrickoff family, and it's it's awesome because you don't have to do much of what you do. You choose to. You step up and you make the communities better in which you live and work. So. Um, with that, I want to wish you a happy, healthy new year and see if um, you have any final thoughts for us here on The Caring Economy. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's Mark Patrickoff, who's CEO and founder of Patrickoff and Company. And only, I would, only I would add, because I did read your questions and I was thinking about sort of what, what's important to you and this program and your listeners. And, and, and you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, corporate social responsibility as a theme is, is, is fundamental. And I don't think anyone who dismisses that is, is they're just missing the point. I, I would say that for me at least, CSR starts with the person who works next to me. 
Now, in my case, I run my own businesses and I have for 25 years. So I take responsibility. So I, I, I don't look at necessarily anything beyond, am I encouraging, training, empowering, treating respectfully my coworkers? And so to me, the notion of corporate social responsibility, yes, it's what you do with the company. And you know, we contribute a percentage of our proceeds. We actually do it to New Heights, not a surprise. But so every, you know, every dollar we make, we, we contribute a percentage of that. There's that component. There's the financial side of it. But I really think if companies were to be more inward focused to start and, yes. you know, and, and take, take responsibility, for example, I always look at it, if I hire somebody, if I've made the decision to hire them, that it's on my shoulders to make, as long as they show up and, show up and work hard and are, are loyal and do their best, we've chosen them. It's up to us to make that a good experience for them. And yeah. I, think, I think you have a very evolved, very thoughtful um, definition of corporate social responsibility, which encompasses a lot of things. Uh, I, I, for me, it's kind of distilled down, at least, at least on a day-to-day -day basis. What can I do with the you know, dozen people who work for me to make them good human beings in the workplace mm -hmm. and make it a good work environment and make sure the work is good? And there's a reason that we do what we do, not just the net income of the business. And, and I think if you do that, that can spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And I really think um, it's important. So I've always tried to build companies where not necessarily we are doing good, but, but, but we are, you know, for others, although that's a nice byproduct, mm -hmm. but that we're doing good work and doing good to one another. Doing it with creating an environment, a quality environment. Yes, and leading by example. Well, as I've written in The Caring Economy and others have taught me, great brands are built from the inside out. You've got to start with that core group of employees. And if they're not on board, they're not believing, they're not following, then you might as well not even set out on that path. So here's a great leader, Mark Patrickoff. We're so grateful that you could join us here on The Caring Economy today. And I hope you'll Thanks, come Brad. back in the, in the new year sometime. We'll talk more about uh, how the business is going and and the trends. But for now, stay well, and my best to you and the family. Thank